It's great to be here again this morning and to see a lot of uh, faces from uh, my past and people that we know and uh, friends that we've known for many years. Let's open up our time together with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. Um, It hasn't always been an easy road throughout the history of the church. Many of your followers have bickered and fought with one another, uh, even had violence break out and wars break out amongst people who name the name of Christ. Uh, This period we're talking about uh, today is no exception to that. And so, Lord, as we study the past, may we appreciate where we've come from and the distinctives that we learned from that tradition, but also may we learn from the past and learn to walk in humility and obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, uh, with that theme in mind, uh, last week, I'm not sure, uh, between both sessions, we pretty much ended up with uh, the death of John Frith, that first generation of uh, English Protestants during the reign of King Henry VIII, right, who were primarily concerned about the core message of the gospel and translation of the Bible into English. Remember William Tyndall, we talked about him last week and his efforts to provide an English Bible for the people, whereas previously it was outlawed. So, um, as I said before, my youngest son's middle name is Frith. And I have great admiration for this young man. He was only 30 years old when he went to the stake and was burned as a heretic under Henry VIII. Now, if there's one person who... I was, I was talking to my wife this morning, and I, I don't know, I need some technical assistance. Not right now, but sometime in my life. But I, can't, I couldn't figure out how to get the picture to pop up first before the bullet points of the outline. You know, Microsoft. Just, ugh. I got a good joke about Microsoft. You want to hear it? <laughs> Although I just blew the punchline. But anyway, um, there's uh, a bunch of people that are in a helicopter in Seattle. They take off from the airport in Seattle, and they're going on a little trip in the helicopter. And and it gets really foggy and socked in, and so they get lost. And, and so finally, the pilot says, I have to just gradually take the helicopter down and, so we can see where we are and then find our way back to the airport. So gradually they descend, they descend, and finally, only about 100 feet above the ground, they poke down below the cloud layer, and they're in the midst of these large office complex and buildings. And so they see a bunch of people in the, in the highest floor of one of the buildings, in the windows, and they're waving at them, and they're waving back. And, and so they put up this sign that says, where are we in, in the side of the helicopter? And, oh, and they go like this, and they, and they ride up, thing, put up the sign that says, you're in a helicopter. And so immediately the pilot pops up, turns 90 degrees south for 15 miles, makes a perfect landing at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Well, the passengers are flabbergasted. How in the world did you know where we were based upon what they told you? So the answer is simple. The answer they gave me, while technically correct, was absolutely useless. Therefore, I knew we were at Microsoft. Okay, um, notice what kind of computer I'm using. All right, okay. All right, so I I was asking my wife this morning, I was like, honey, do you know how to do this? And she couldn't figure it out either. Anyway, so um, if there's one individual who kind of encapsulates the early English Reformation, it would be Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, okay? He was a Cambridge professor, Uh, was acquainted with the other early Protestants, uh, part of, I don't know if you ever heard of the White Horse Inn group, Uh, but it was a famous group of English Protestants who were interested in Luther's ideas that used to meet in a tavern in the city of Cambridge. Um, But 
Henry VIII, through sort of almost a, an amazing transformation, picked Thomas to be the next Archbishop of Canterbury in 1532, early 1533. And uh, at this point in time, he wasn't yet fully Protestant in his viewpoint. So one of the first official acts that he did was actually to preside over John Frith's heresy trial, in which he condemned Frith for his viewpoint on the Lord's Supper. Now, just to summarize this, you say, well, who cares? Well, it was a big deal back then, because the Catholic sacrament of the altar, you know, the Eucharist, was at the center of the Catholic faith and worship. And the doctrine of transubstantiation, you know, where, where the Catholic teaching is that the bread and the wine are transformed inwardly into the real body and blood of Jesus. And so, therefore, when the Mass is celebrated, that becomes a true and effective sacrifice for sins offered to people. So that the central part of Catholic worship was the Mass, the celebration of the Eucharist and partaking of the sacrament of the altar. Okay. That was a central thing, not preaching. That's what's so radically different. So if you look at a Catholic church and you go into a Catholic cathedral, what you'll always see at the center of the church is a cross with an altar underneath it. And the altar is where they offer the sacrifice. And the priests will actually stand with their back to the, to the congregation, offer the sacrifice, and then bring it out to the lay people, okay, where they would partake of it. This was what the service was all about. This was thought to be a means of grace. Now, when I say a means of grace, in other words, if I perform this action, it will actually cause God's grace to be communicated to people. So the grace of forgiveness of your sins was transmitted through the sacrament of the altar. So it was very important, and to attack transubstantiation as a doctrine and the whole concept of the Catholic sacrament of the Mass was to really uh, attack the center of all Catholic teaching about salvation. And so Frith was uh, condemned for this, but... The irony is that eventually Cramner becomes the architect and the leader of the English Reformed Church, first under King Henry. Somehow he survives Henry and continues to move the church in very subtle Protestant directions. But then once Henry died and his uh, son, Edward VI, became king, remember, he was just a boy, um, Cramner um, moved the church in a very Protestant direction. And he's probably best known for, and I don't have this up as a bullet point, best known for his writing of the first couple of editions of the, the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Prayer Book. And this was a, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things, some of you maybe are ex-pastors, maybe you've gotten a copy of these, but it, it's basically an outline for how to conduct services. And um, and it's even got prayers that are supposed to be recited during certain times of the year and so forth, so that a minister would just simply follow the prayer book. Um, and oftentimes, they weren't allowed to preach, the pastors of the churches. They didn't call them pastors. They'd call them priests or vicars of the individual churches. And so not, not all of them, in fact, few of them were licensed to preach. So they were just expected to follow the liturgy of the prayer book in the church. But anyway, there's another issue. I'll talk about that a little bit later. So uh, the irony of his life is that once King Edward died and Queen Mary came to the throne, Cramner was tried for his viewpoint on transubstantiation, which was now virtually identical to John Frith's old idea. You know, standard Protestant thing is that we're partaking of Jesus spiritually. He's not physically present in the blood and the, and the bread and the wine and so forth. So he ends up, that's what he ends up being executed for under Queen Mary. And I'll talk a little bit about Queen Mary here shortly. 
And there she is. Uh, again, here's my problem. I wanted the picture to come up. Um, I'm sorry? She, she was rough. Um, she's kind of a tragic uh, character in a lot of ways. Um, she was, obviously, she was Queen Catherine's child. The only one of Queen Catherine's, remember last week we talked about Henry's first wife, the only surviving child of Henry and Catherine. She was raised uh, in her mother's household as a devout Catholic. All right. Um, obviously, she became queen uh, at the death of Edward VI. Only had a brief reign, five years, because she got sick and died probably of some form of cancer or whatever. Um, there was rumors that she was pregnant, you know, but then that turned out probably to be some sort of tumor, you know, that had stopped her her menstruation and caused swelling in her belly and so forth. So it was a great disappointment. She tried aggressively to undo everything that Cramner and Edward and that even Henry VIII had done in his latter years and return uh, the church back to the Roman Catholic faith. What she did that was incredibly unpopular was get married to the Spanish king, Philip II. This made her very unpopular because there was a great fear that this was going to subjugate the kingdom of England to Spain. And... uh, now, again, the politics here are unmistakable. You know, we think about the Spanish Armada, you remember that, and, and a lot of this stuff that's in our consciousness as descendants of the English Empire. But it was a lot of this conflict between English, England and Spain was really religious in nature. Spain was, still, was a very staunchly Catholic country. England had gone Protestant, and so uh, a lot of the conflict between the two nations uh, reflected in these religious differences. So um, what she's unfortunately for her best remembered for is execution of 280 Protestant clergy, you know, bishops, including Cramner. Uh, Virtually all of them uh, burned alive at the stake. So she ended up being called for history of Bloody Mary. And she had a drink named after her. It's red, like blood, you know. So, in any event, here's a one of the famous martyr incidences: uh, Bishops Latimer and Ridley, two very well-respected, godly gentlemen. Uh, Latimer is is supposed to have said to Ridley, right as they were there getting ready to be burned. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. One of the famous quotations from the English Reformation. And this this took place in the city of Oxford. So if you ever get to Oxford, uh, at the corner of a street, there's a little memorial to the Oxford martyrs, uh, Latimer and Ridley, and then later Thomas Cramner, burned under Mary's rule. Um, Then we have uh, the burning of Thomas Cramner, which I referred to before. He was arrested and tried with Latimer and Ridley and condemned as a heretic, again, primarily for the denial of transubstantiation. But he tried to save his life by recanting. Now, recanting means to Basically say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. You know, basically. Uh, saying, I don't believe that anymore. I take, ba- I take it back. I take it back. Um, but normally, what would happen if you recanted the first time, you would be restored. You could be forgiven and restored back to your former life. If you fell into her- heresy a second time, even if you recanted, you would be burned alive. That was kind of law at the point in time. So um, oftentimes 
if you were convicted of heresy, you would have to do public penance. And one of the favorite things was you have to put on sackcloth and ashes and walk around with this burning torch throughout the city, you know, as a kind of an abject sign of your public repentance. And the torch would represent your future should you relapse back into heresy. As a reminder, did burning in flames would be your future. Um, Mary didn't trust him, so they decided they were going to execute him anyway. So before he died, he retracted his retractions and ended up dying very heroically. And as the artist here, if you'll notice, he's, he's, place, he's pointing out his hand, his right hand, he placed his hand in the fire first because it had signed his recantations. So he repented of his weakness. So Cramner is an interesting character. He's very influential, but also very human. You see him, not the courageous martyr like John Frith going to his death and never wavering in his position, but actually being... You know, he was forced to watch. They actually took him and had to watch his two friends being burned alive. So he was put under enormous pressure to, and they wanted to turn him into propaganda. You know, oh, here's the, here's the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, well, look, he, he, he's recanted. He said he was wrong. But then, of course, when he turned around and recanted his recantation, all that propaganda was lost because this story became well-known in a heartbeat, what he did and the effect of it. So again, another poignant moment in the English Reformation that was kind of burned into the national consciousness. Well, it's a bad use of words, burned in it, but anyway. Um, and again, the source of a lot of this was Fox and his Book of Martyrs. You know. Okay, now... Oh, wait, that one came in early. Oh, oh, good. Yeah, all right. The Reformation, there she is, the Virgin Queen. All right? The last surviving child of Henry VIII, but she was born uh, of Anne Boleyn, the only child that Anne Boleyn, remember the, the second wife of Henry, now, there'll be a quiz on all the wives and the kings and everything at the end of the course, so you better, you know, better pay attention and get it all. Actually, in England, there's a little rhyme that goes along. I don't know how to say it, but it's like, you know, you know go through all, they all, all the school children learn the wives of Henry VIII when they're little and stuff like that. So, so she was raised as a Protestant and became queen when Mary died. And she was always in a very delicate position because she was supportive of her sister while her sister was alive to basically keep her head on her shoulders um, because she was always under suspicion because she had been raised as a Protestant. Okay? And um, so she, she had an incredibly long reign from 1558 to 1603. So, 45 years. And we call this the Elizabethan era. And uh, it wasn't an easy reign. There were many attempts on her life. The Spanish Armada was raised to try to, you know, conquer England and return it back to Roman Catholicism. You know, so she had a difficult time. Two important acts at the beginning of her reign... And again, this is mostly politics, but the 1559 Act of Supremacy sort of undid everything that her sister had tried to do. It reinstated her as the head of the Church of England, although the language was governor of the Church of England. They didn't like the idea of a woman being the head of the church. That was seen to be against Scripture. But in any event, the the effect was it put her back in the position that her father had been in, so that uh, the church was no longer subject to the Pope in Rome. And then the Act of Uniformity um, 
was, again, an action to try to create the state religion that was all pretty much the same. And, of course, a part of this was the institution of Cramner's prayer books as the stipulated form of worship that all the churches in England would do. Okay, we'll talk about how this relates to English Puritanism because our topic today is Puritanism, not the English monarchy and their trials, although it might seem like we're going down that direction. So um, this then leads to the development of English Puritanism, um, rooting out the remnants of popery, not potpourri, um, popery. That's actually a term, believe it or not. In other words, uh, the Puritans were concerned. They were pretty much, the conservative Protestants were much more in control under the reign of Edward VI. But when he died, of course, things really went bad. Many Protestants had to flee to the continent. And so there were English refugee congregations in several cities in Europe, uh, Frankfurt, Geneva, Zurich, other places where uh, there was Reformed presence. So they were heavily influenced by Calvin and Bollinger and other Reformers on the continent. And when they came back under Elizabeth, there was a lot of concern. So, um, where are we here? Um, Let me just hold off on that. So there was concern about what form the English church was going to take. It was taking a Protestant form. Elizabeth was clearly a Protestant. Okay, But there's a different flavor, if you will. And I want to talk about this case study as as an example to show the different approaches that the two different parties took. So we're going to talk about Luther and Zwingli, all right? And we're going to talk about their viewpoints on music in the church. There's Luther, there's Zwingli. Um, some people have said I kind of look like Zwingli. I've got, got this thing going on, you know. I don't have the hair, of the Zwingli and hair there, but anyway. Maybe in my better-looking days, I don't know, not now, you know, all the gray hair and all that. But Okay, now... This is kind of a fascinating thing. If anybody wants to study this further, I've got a paper I wrote on it that I'd be glad to send you a copy of. But um, both of these men were accomplished musicians. Zwingli even more. We know that that he loved music. He, he played music. Even composed some music. So it's not he was he wasn't a music hater. Uh, we of course all know Luther. Right? We all know Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Okay, it's sort of the Reformation hymn, right? You know? And so we know that Luther wrote hymns himself, and he was a big advocate of using music in the worship of the church. He felt that um, music was God's gift to us, and that it could be used to further the ministry of the Word of God, was in full agreement with use of musical instruments to embellish music and so forth, right? So in Lutheran Germany, music became a central part of uh, Lutheran liturgy or worship of the Lutheran church. Um, In Zurich, now you you talked about Zwingli, right? You had a, a whole session on him. So I don't know if your speaker talked about this or not. I wasn't here. But in Zurich, Zwingli removed all the organs from the churches, forbade all musical instruments, even all singing in Zurich. Now, why? I mean, he liked music. And I I like to point this out because... I think it shows us two different approaches to the Bible and tradition. So I want to call, um, let's see, do I have, yeah, 
Luther's positive scriptural principle. We're going to call that here, okay? So first of all, he had a positive view of tradition, Luther did. Believe it or not, you know, we think of Luther as this radical revolutionary. He really wasn't, okay? The radicals he opposed greatly, people who wanted to burn images and iconoclasts and so forth. So he had a positive role of tradition as long as tradition didn't harm the core doctrine of the Bible, justification by faith alone. Okay. Now, there's a very interesting passage in his Babylonian captivity of the church where Luther talks about uh, some of the ceremonies surrounding uh, communion. He said, these things are traditional, it's no problem with them, as long as we're not reading into these things the wrong doctrine, the wrong doctrine of transubstantiation, the wrong doctrine of justification by faith plus works, which the Catholic Church taught. Okay? So as long as something's traditional and doesn't affect the key teachings of the Bible, it's okay. So Luther blew, and as I said, music was a gift of God. And summarized then, whatever, and this is the key thing I want you to take away from this, whatever is prohibited is allowed, is not prohibited, excuse me, is allowed as long as it does not hinder the gospel. So I call this the positive scriptural principle. Now think with me for a minute. This was about music, but can you think of a contemporary kind of debate that goes on amongst Christians where of a similar sort of thing? Okay, give me an example. Okay, yeah, we're, we're, here, we're, we're still on the music thing. Yeah, I remember uh, you know, churches debating over drums. Drums in the church. Oh. You know, so some were against it. Um, so the positive scriptural principle kind of person is going to say, look, the Bible doesn't say you can't do this. Why not? If we think it's going to add to what we're doing and it doesn't take away from the core things that we're trying to say, etc., etc., as long as it doesn't hinder the gospel and might be even seen as helping things. So this is, you know, in today's ideas on music, oftentimes this is the more popular viewpoint. You know, we're going to incorporate contemporary music styles and even hard rock and roll music and formats. Uh, If you go into a church today, you won't usually see a lot of the more modern churches. You won't see a pulpit in the center of the church. You'll see what looks like a theater or even a concert venue, big video screens, a stage, Usually no big pulpit in the, in the middle. If, if anything, there might be a little lectern or a music stand or something. Okay. So, um, so this is kind of this positive scriptural principle. All right. Zwingli, however, had a different viewpoint. I call it the negative scriptural principle. Uh, you could call this the Puritan regulative principle. Somebody's heard about this. Um, I think it generated here in Zurich. I had a very negative view of tradition. Okay. Tradition is largely our enemy rather than something that we should be comfortable with. Um, and here's the core idea. Only what is specifically prescribed in the scripture is to be done in Christian worship. So if in doubt, throw it out. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, there's all kinds of music in the Bible. There's musical instruments in the Bible, not in the New Testament. What about Paul's spiritual Right. So, now, Zwingli went actually way too far, I think, because he, he got rid of singing. But in a lot of Reformed churches, what you have developing is a cappella singing, and in many of them, simply metrical use of the Psalms. That was the only singing that would be allowed. No orchestras, no organs. And there still are many uh, congregations within the Reformed tradition who are still doing that. You know, Amongst other denominations, too, there are primitive Methodists who don't allow musical instruments and things like that. So its root is in this principle that only what is prescribed in Scripture is allowed to be done in worship. Okay, since there are no examples or commands of musical instruments in the New Testament, therefore they're not allowed. 
So it's, you see, it's a completely opposite way of looking at things. You know, Luther's saying, there's nothing against using musical instruments in the Bible, so why not, you know, that sort of thing. And, of course, you could also argue, well, we see it all through the use of the Psalms and so forth and so on. Yeah. It's interesting just looking at your strategies. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you have Zwingli who's looking at the Catholic Church and realizing sola scriptura, because that's their prayer. Right, right. He's, real, he's realizing that they need to gather on this idea that we read the Bible. And because right. the Catholic Church teaches that the Bible is one of many things, right. including tradition, tradition right. is equal to the Bible, he's taking the strategy of let's start removing these other things. Right. We'll go to sola scriptura and the Gospels in there. So yeah. it's, it's interesting. Like, yeah. They're both trying to get to the same place, exactly. but their strategy is different. Like one's trying to dismantle what the Catholic Church has said as being right. equal to Scripture, and the other one's just saying, go right to the message. Yeah. Well, I think so. I, you know, I mean, if you really study what Zwingli said, Zwingli didn't even allow oral prayer in the churches. He thought that, you know, he was in singing and stuff like that. So I don't think, I think in light of what, Somebody said about, you know, the verses in Paul. You said about the verses in Paul. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly some references to singing spiritual songs, uh, music in your heart, and that sort of a thing. Yeah. Could you describe services in Geneva? What inspired the church services? Good question. I believe that... You know, I'm not positive. I'd have to go look that up. But I think that Calvin sort of went in this direction, but not as extreme. So in Geneva, I think there was singing and metrical psalms and things like this. And by the way, the, you know, singing the psalms is a great idea. You know, uh, why not put scripture to music and sing it? It's the best way to memorize it, right? You, you know, sometimes you you find yourself memorizing a song that you don't even want to know, right? You know, it's got a good jingle to it. You know, like, you deserve a break today. You know, I'm like, I don't want to think about that. You know, it's McDonald's is in my head, you know, or even something worse, you know, some sort of a lustful lyric, right, which there's a lot of that going on today. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great idea, um, personally, so the idea of singing scripture and using it as a tool to help people memorize the word of God is a fantastic thing. There's been some efforts to do that, but not nearly enough, I think. Uh, a lot of you know, popular music today, I mean, Christian music is all, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. Okay, that's good that you love Jesus, but it's kind of like repeats this sort of theme over and over and over and over again ad nauseum. I'm sorry, I'm... I'm <clears throat> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Huh? My, negative, uh, my negative musical principle. <laughs> so, uh, so basically, whatever is not commanded in the New Testament is prohibited for use in Christian worship. Now, this becomes, the reason I'm going over this is because, you know, a lot of the battles the Puritans had with the English church weren't doctrinal. They were all about how you worship, what you did during church, what you wore, the movements you made, whether you kneeled or you stood up, you know, and so forth. So we'll talk about that in a few moments here. I could go for a lot longer on this, but it's it's sort of peripheral, but it's, I think, from the very beginning, you have these two major strands of the Protestant faith. One that would develop into Reformed Christianity, the English Church, uh, Presbyterianism, you know, all of the you know, Reformed Episcopalians and so forth, Reformed Baptists. And then you have the Lutheran branch. Okay. So. All right. Now, some of the background for English Puritanism... Um, under Edward VI, I said there was a movement towards a more thoroughly Protestant English church, but under Mary, there was a desire to go back to Catholicism, right? Under Elizabeth, 
there was something that's been called the Elizabethan settlement. The English church adopts a Calvinistic doctrinal position. If you look at the Anglican Statement of Faith, the 39 Articles of Religion, they're Calvinistic. Calvin read them and approved of them. So this wasn't about predestination versus free will or any of those things. That was pretty much stated right in there. But it was really about many of the religious practices, what I just said. This is often called, and here's a classic term, the via media, the middle way of the English church. And the middle way between what? Well, between going back to Rome and domination by the Roman bishop and so forth, and between the radical Protestants, the Puritans. He wanted to ditch all the traditions, change the public worship, change even the structure of the church, and so forth. Okay? So it gets complicated after this, so we'll try to do as much as we can here. Um, here's, this is kind of a modern picture. You can tell by the eyeglasses and so forth. But I was looking for a picture of what a bishop would look like wearing all of the clerical falderall that they wear. Okay, you know, he's got the bishop's mitre. If you play chess, that looks familiar, right? Um, the bishop's staff to symbolize being a shepherd of the church and so forth, and then all this other stuff. Um, these were considered clerical vestments. And so there were certain things that, that the English clergy were expected to wear, and particularly the bishops of the church were expected to wear so um, the first outbreak of vestments controversy was with a man named John Hooper, who was appointed a bishop during Edward's reign. And he objected to this because he didn't believe, he was a Puritan, he didn't believe in wearing all of this special garments. You know, he felt, you know, and there's a reason behind it, he felt that this create a separation between clergy and laity, and there's kind of a theological background behind it. Um, And he was ordered to submit to this, and he refused. And so this became a bone of contention between Puritans and uh, the ecclesiastical authorities for quite a long time, for 40 or 50 years. They continually um, objected to the requirements for clergy to wear special garments and so forth. Now, <clears throat> adiaphora. I'm sure this is what you were talking about at breakfast this morning. <laughs> adiaphora means a thing indifferent. Okay. In other words, something, and when it was applied to church practices or even doctrine, something not commanded in the Bible but not prohibited. So an indifferent thing. Um, there were some discussions in the New Testament about these sorts of things, right? Is it, is it okay to, do, to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Okay, right? Some people thought it was okay. Some people thought it was wrong. So there is some difference of opinion on this. Uh, maybe a contemporary example would be, should Christians use alcoholic beverages or not? Right? Some people are like, hey, the Bible doesn't prohibit it. In fact, Jesus drank wine. Others would say, oh, there's all kinds of problems and it's better to stay away from it. And the wine that Jesus drank was heavily watered down anyway. Okay. So, uh, I'm not going to get into that argument, by the way. (laughs) We're not going there. Now, it's interesting how the different viewpoints, the Anglican authorities argued that since it's not prohibited in Scripture, there's no verse that says, thou shalt not wear a special garment. In fact, in the Old Testament, they were ordered to wear special garments, right? The priests and so forth. Um, We have the right to demand conformity because we are over you in the Lord. We are your theological and ecclesiastical superiors. And so the church wanted uniformity. They wanted to dictate to all of the bishops and you know what you had to wear, what you had to do. 
Okay. So the Puritans objected to being forced to obey something that's not prescribed in the Bible. And they argued for freedom of conscience. So they felt like they were being forced to violate the way they understood the scriptures. Uh, and again, you know, one of these key issues was vestments, but this sort of applied to many issues that the Puritans were upset about. Okay? Now, here's King Jimmy. In 1603, Elizabeth died. And she was childless. She never married, hence the title of Virgin Queen. And uh, her nephew, I think, would be the correct way to put it. He was the grandson of uh, Henry's father, Henry VIII's father, so Henry VII. He previously was king of Scotland. He was the only child of Mary, Queen of Scots. There's a lot of old English history here. So Mary, Queen of Scots, who was always in trouble, and eventually Elizabeth had her executed because she was always trying. She was Catholic. She was trying to incite rebellion against him. Yeah. Well, King of Scotland, I think he was James the Fourth, but King of England, he was James the One. So. King James I of England, uh, of Scotland. He was king of Scotland went from being one year old because his mother was forced to abdicate, and he was king. Of course, they ruled by regents for many years until he reached his adulthood. But when, um, when Elizabeth died, he was brought in as the king of England as well. So he ended up being king of Scotland, England, and Ireland. Okay, that's the second point there from 1603 to his death in 1625. Two key things for the Puritans in the development here is the millenniary petition, called so because there were a thousand Puritan ministers that signed this. That's where you get the millenniary. Now, this (laughs) this might seem silly to you, but here's what they objected to. They didn't want you to use the sign of the cross in baptism. Okay, because they saw that as superstitious. They wanted to get rid of the rite of confirmation because it's not found in the Bible. Okay, see that? What's not in the Bible is to be getting rid of. Um, They wanted to get rid of the performance of baptism by midwives because the Catholic Church allowed this because of their viewpoint that unbaptized children go to hell. And so... Midwives can baptize babies right away so that if they die, which was very common for children to die right after birth, um, they would go to heaven. So they didn't like that idea. They didn't like exchanging rings in the marriage ceremony. That was part of what they were objecting to. I don't get that one quite, but they felt it was, I think it was, they thought it was superstitious, you know. Yeah, no, they didn't. They didn't celebrate Christmas or Easter either because that's not in the Bible. See the point? The whole point is if it isn't in the Bible, we shouldn't do it. So we shouldn't celebrate, even though it's a tradition, to celebrate Easter or Christmas. It's not in the Bible. Hence, it's not in the Bible. Out it goes. Okay. Uh, Obviously, vestments, okay? That's a part of it. Um, The one thing I did agree with that they did mention in the millinery petition is they wanted to have a preaching pastor at every church. Remember I said before that most English congregations did not have a licensed preacher. And so all the local clergyman was supposed to do was lead everybody through the Book of Common Prayer, read the prayers, pray the prayers, administrate the Lord's Supper, and say, you know, Peace to you, and let them go. So they were very keen on the preaching of the word of God for everybody. Okay. Now this would have required a great deal more education for the clergy, which is something they also wanted. Now the second thing here is the Hampton Court uh, Conference of 1604. They didn't get what they wanted, obviously. And what they pushed for in the Hampton Court Conference 
was a change in the entire structure of the English church to a Presbyterian system, away from an Episcopal system. The king famously said, no bishop, no king. He was very against that because he felt that creating a more egalitarian Presbyterian system would destroy his authority as the head of the church and being able to create that authority from the top down through the episcopate, through the bishops. So he said no to that, but what he did give them in the Hampton Court Conference was very important in the long term of history, and that is the King James Bible. He authorized a a brand new, uh, well-funded, broad, sweeping, scholarly revision of the English Bible, which became the King James Version of the Bible, and was given his name. And, of course, that has exerted enormous influence and still is widely used today by many, many millions of people. Okay, um, when he died, his son Charles I became king. And, again, I have to run through to get a a picture of Charles. He looks quite the dandy. But... uh, that was the style back in those days. Can you imagine a guy wearing shoes like that today? That would be, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so imagine you're a Puritan in early 1600s. You know, there initially was some optimism about having King James as your king because he was the king of Scotland. Scotland was Presbyterian, right? Is he gonna, are we going to be able to move the church out of popery, uh, and it didn't happen. Okay, so there was a lot of disappointment. Okay, when his son became king, there was extreme angst because he moved the church further away from the Puritans. Uh, later in his reign, he moved towards Arminianism. Appointed an archbishop, Archbishop Laud who was not only Arminian in his theology, but began to enforce Arminianism on the whole English church. Now, we talked a little bit about that last week. Very briefly, we don't have time to go back over that ground again, but this is in the era of the Synod of Dort and the Arminian controversies that took place in Holland. So that theology is beginning to come over and impact the English church. Um, Eventually... This broke out in real problems between the parliament and the king and led, actually, to the English Civil War, eventually. And ultimately, parliament defeated the king's forces. The the king's people were called cavaliers, and the new model army led by Oliver Cromwell was called the Roundheads, the Puritan army, uh, that was supported by... Parliament. So there's this big division between Parliament and the king, and Parliament won, and they actually imprisoned and then eventually executed Charles I. And that led to, and I, I'm sorry I don't have a slide for this, but I'm just going to mention this briefly, to um, a very brief Puritan period in the rule of England, and it led to what's known as the Westminster Assembly from which we got the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter and Longer Catechisms, and an attempt to reorganize the Church of England in Presbyterian forms. But unfortunately, the Puritans themselves were divided over this. Many were Congregationalists or Independents, didn't believe in a Presbyterian system. Uh, Some still wanted an Episcopal system. So, you know, the the Puritans themselves were divided, and that hurt them a lot. Um, So the makeup of the English church prior to the Civil War was uh, first and foremost Anglican. Now, what I mean by Anglicans are individuals who adopted the via media of the state church with Protestant doctrine. Although this was changing at the latter period with the introduction of Arminian theology. Okay. But they believed in the Episcopal traditions, they believed in the hierarchy. Okay. 
Roman Catholics, there were still a lot of closet Roman Catholics running around. And so, you know, many of those people were very happy when Mary tried to take them back to Rome, uh, but they were living sort of incognito during the period of the Anglican Church. So there's still a lot of Roman Catholics uh, worshiping secretly or as nonconformists in England at that time. And then you have the Puritans. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and the Puritans really can be really divided up into two groups. Um, three if you count the separatists. I'm going to talk about the separatists in a minute. But there were... Uh, let's, let's make a distinction between Puritans and separatists right now. Okay. But they held many of the same ideas and had many of the same objections to the state church. With the Puritans... As time moved on, as I said, they became increasingly disenchanted with the state church, especially during Charles I's reign. Okay. Some of them stayed and continued to try to work within that state church for change. And eventually, that's the group that was the nucleus of the parliamentary forces in the Civil War. But... Others of this group emigrated to the United States by the thousands. Well, not the United States, but to the colonies of America. And that will be Matthew's topic next. He'll talk about these Puritans who came to America and why. But again, the, the source of this is this angst over the, the state religion in England and how they were concerned about it moving more and more back towards Roman Catholicism. Yeah? Did I hear much about the uh, uh, position of any of these factions with regard to free will and, and uh, free estimation and stuff like that? And I right. Know, what was the Puritan's stance? I know Presbyterians are moving a lot towards uh, free estimation for the exclusion of free will. Yeah, as I said, you know, until the, the Synod of Dort and until the later period of the reign of Charles I, the English church still was officially Calvinistic. Okay, um, But Charles I began to open the door to those ideas, and he put Archbishop Laud in in 1533 as the new Archbishop of Canterbury. And that just sent the Puritans bonkers, because he was a flaming Arminian, full bore the whole thing, and began to and forcefully institute that upon um, the English church. So that's when that issue became really to the fore. And that had a lot to do, I think, with the development of the English Civil War because of uh, that. But before then, um, the Puritans who came to America predated all of that, pretty much. And they were all um, Calvinistic, you know, I mean, there were some subgroups as to whether or not they were infra or superlapsarian and stuff like that, but that's way too complicated to get into today. But for the most part, I mean, they would all have been considered more or less five-point Calvinists. Um, like I said, the English doctrinal statement was. But the ones who came to America, um, their vision, and I don't want to steal Matthew's material for next week, but their vision was to create this ideal community based upon the Bible in a, in a Puritan interpretation, you know, that would be, and the classic statement is, the city set on a hill. You know, and that is a quotation that the first governor used in a sermon that he preached on the way over. Yeah? Right. Right, yeah, you know, because anything in the Reformed tradition would have gotten rid of all crucifixes and, you know, for the most part, I mean, if you ever go to a Catholic church, you'll see all kinds of artwork and sometimes really ornate things and statues and, and all this stuff. So, yeah, so, I mean, the the Puritans and the Reformed branch pretty much wanted to get rid of all of that. They saw those as remnants of Roman Catholicism and the whole system. So... Let me just wrap this up. I only got a couple minutes. Um, so 
there were the Puritans wanted to stay within the English church, but they wanted to reform it from within. Some of them stayed. Others went on this errand in the wilderness, as they used to call it, to go to, the, to New England, set up this colony that would be this godly commonwealth, you know, based upon biblical principles and so forth. And so the Massachusetts Bay Colony was formed. The separatists were those who gave up on the system. And you see them developing in the late 1500s. And the, the Plymouth Colony group were separatists. They had fled. Now, the, remember, there was no freedom of religion in England. So there was the state church. And if you had an underground congregation, you could be arrested and executed. And some were. And so the separatists, many of them had emigrated to Holland, where there was more religious freedom. And the group with Bradford and, and, and those, you know, William Bradford and the others who came over on the Mayflower were actually Puritan in theology and, and approach, but they had separated themselves from the state church and were independents. And they came over and settled first in Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts just a few years before the rest of the you know, large number of Puritans came over. And it's interesting that you know, there was, I think, only 300 came over on the Mayflower. Um, within 10 years, the Puritans, there had been some is it 20 or 30,000 immigrants to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So this was a rather small group that eventually was swallowed up by the large. And if you know anything about the Mayflower and its story and everything, most of that... 300 people died within a year or two, and, and uh, they never really became a very flourishing colony. Uh, but they were there first. <laughs> and one of the things I think that we prize about them is that they were seeking religious liberty from persecution. Whereas the Puritans came in, and they were still trying to establish more of a state church, but one that was along Puritan lines. And so they weren't tolerant of other viewpoints, and so forth. So, yeah? Uh, it's all those Roman Catholics that came over, all the Irish that came over and immigrated to Massachusetts. It's all their fault. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, it did change things a lot, because you think of, really, the Boston area is a bastion of Roman Catholicism. But there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Irish immigrants that settled, many of them, in New England. So. They came over wanting freedom to worship the, the Puritan way, but they didn't want everybody else to have freedom to worship the way they wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. So they yeah. the same thing over here. That yeah, I mean, they persecuted Quakers and other groups that came along. Uh, eventually, you know, they ended up having to become more inclusive because the whole country was moving that way. But, again, we're talking about the period. You know, the first settlements in Massachusetts happened, oh, when was the Mayflower? Was it 1628, 23? 20, okay, thank you for that. And then the massive migration of the Massachusetts Bay Colony started in large numbers in 1630. So a few years later, you have a massive colonization movement, not just small little groups in a small little settlement, but really the establishment of some major cities. And so by 1636, Harvard College has been founded. They're already starting to think about you know, educating their ministers, things like that, it's within six years of landing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Puritans, you know, I mean, I, I try to be realistic about the Puritans. There's a lot of things I admire. Some stuff I just shake my head at, you know, like why you can't have a wedding ring. Um, but, but some of the good things they did is they were very much into educating everybody, you know, uh, public education, so forth like that, you know, teaching everyone, boys and girls, how to read and write, and primarily, yeah. They use the Bible as their lecture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Roger Williams actually came over as a part of the Puritan movement. And he felt that the Puritans weren't pure enough. And sort of separated himself from them. And, and then he had a, a crisis of conscience and began to hang out with the Indians and was a great advocate of, uh, you know, fair treatment for the indigenous Americans, you know, stuff like that. And uh, is still held in high esteem in Rhode Island in particular. So, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, we're out of time. I'll hang out here if anybody has any further questions. Um, you're dismissed. Leave. Go. <laughs>